Clive, thank you so much for making some time for us in your glorious estate, which is magnificent and, and obviously, as you said, stretches on for, for miles. Yeah, the, 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 one of the golf courses. Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, just by the stables. One of our golf courses. Just by yeah. the stables. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we were just saying before, you've, you've done 17 Champions League finals, is that correct? Yeah, um, 1998 was the first Champions League final that I broadcast live on television. Uh, my predecessor, uh, the late great Brian Moore, um, from whom I learned so much, um, was readying himself for his farewell tour of duty at the World Cup Finals. So um, I was his understudy at ITV, and um, they gave they gave me the the '98 Champions League final. And um, I've been to every one since, commentated every one for television since, albeit the last three years only in highlight form. Uh, yeah, um, it's um, it's competition that has been the mainstay really of ITV's coverage. Um, certainly, along with the England games and the and the international tournament games, it's been the mainstay of our club coverage throughout my career at ITV. And um, in terms of career highlights, which are never really for me to define, but um, uh, in terms of headline matches that I've commentated on, then obviously. The Champions League finals of 1999, 2005, 2008, 2012 um, have been amongst the biggest occasions and biggest audiences that, that I've broadcast to. So, yeah, Champions League's um, in my blood, really. I think you can define, though, can't you, what, sort of individual highlights, as in moments when you arrive there and you're like, this is special? Um, yeah, but I define them probably in different terms to the, to the viewership. To the viewer. And we broadcast for the viewers, not for ourselves. So whether I'm good, bad or indifferent is, is a matter of opinion. And, and whether I was good, bad and indifferent on a particular night is, uh, is a matter of opinion. And I respect that completely. I mean, um, what I might think is the best piece of work that I've ever done will be somebody's idea of the worst piece of commentary they've ever heard. Was there any of those nights from those four or five phones that you picked where you arrived and it just felt special atmospherically? Well, the, the, the 1999 final uh, between Manchester United and, and Bayern Munich w came at the end of my first season as ITV senior commentator. As I say, Brian Moore retired after the 98 World Cup finals. So that was my first season as number one. And um, even though they had brought me into the organisation back from the BBC two years earlier, specifically to understudy Brian with an eye to looking to the future, such was the portfolio that ITV had at the time that had I not been up to the job, they would have replaced me. So in many respects, you know, broadcasting to whatever it was, 20 odd million people, and broadcasting that climax of, of that final to that number of people, uh, not to put uh, too fine a point on it, uh, if I'd have fucked up, then you wouldn't be <laughs> talking to me now. They, they'd have got Motti in straight away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's such a, a, a weird thing, isn't it, that you're in that moment and you have to get it right but also at the same time, there's no precedent for some of these moments. Like that moment, that had never happened before in that way, you know, and it, it, yeah, it could I'm, never happen in that way again. I mean, um, it, it's, it's quite opposite at the moment because we're, we're 20 years on and, uh, and quite a lot of people are talking about that final. It was a really poor final. Um, and um, it, 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 that way? It, well, it was a big game for me and I did feel a little bit of pressure. Funnily enough, Brian Moore w was with me at lunchtime on the day of the game. He had a a corporate gig with UEFA and it was quite reassuring to have him with me and I think if I remember rightly we travelled to the new camp together uh, that day it was boiling hot in Barcelona uh, and 
I mean, I like to arrive three, four hours before a game. Moro used to like to arrive six, seven hours before a game. So because we were, I was going with him, I was there ridiculously early. And, and, and there is something about an empty stadium before a big occasion, um, which is very, very atmospheric, particularly if you're going to work with the material that's about to be created on this stage. And I quite enjoy those sort of moments alone, several hours before a game, before they open the gates, and the, you know, the ground staff are putting the final touches to the, to the, to the lines, and all that kind of stuff is almost part of the build-up, really, as much as doing all the preparation that you do beforehand. So I was aware that it was a big night for me, as well as clearly a big night for Manchester United and their, their, uh, their treble dreams. Um, but you are kind of. You know, people often say, do you prepare lines for certain situations? And the classic answer is, how can you prepare anything for a match which isn't great for 85 minutes, where Manchester United's dream is ebbing away, and then suddenly they make a couple of substitutions and score in the whatever it was, 91st and 93rd minute. You cannot prepare for that. What you can prepare for, and, and which I think you should prepare for, it's not cheating to editorially think through what victory will mean for Manchester United tonight, what defeat will mean for Manchester United tonight, and, and put together some strands of thoughts, not some precise words, not Manchester United have reached the promised land or whatever it was, but something which is, it is almost biblical, it is, the, the event has that kind of slight melodrama about it because it's so unreal, how they got there, how the game evolved. Um, and so even though the actual phrase comes off the top of the head, the, the thinking that should go on beforehand can get you ahead of the game. And in that sense, no, it's not something that's never happened before because great football matches have happened before. And you've, heard, you've heard great yeah. and bad commentary lines at the end of matches. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I say, that's an integral part of it. I always think of, of football commentary as hopefully broadcast journalism. And journalism is all about what's the story. What does this mean? Why, why are we watching this? Why are we reading this? Why are we logging on to this? What, what has got our interest here? And there will be a story, an old-fashioned tale that we've got to tell. And it's not just a question of like a piece of running copy where you, you're, you're obviously we're calling the names out, not knowing what's happening in the next minute and the next minute and the next minute, but you should have an overview. I, I think that if I've done my job well, then what I'm saying towards the, the end of a game will be the kind of thoughts that will appear on the back page of the newspaper or on the news sites the next morning that, that somehow we've got a grasp of the significance the importance of the story and i think you can prepare for those things in advance when you say you arrive early on to games or sort of soak up that pre-atmosphere is there the ability to do that because you're so far away from kickoff? Does it give you a sense of calm before it gets a little? Because I mean, we all know with broadcast, once it gets to about an hour to go to kickoff, suddenly everything happens very quickly. You know, it suddenly feels like everything's going on really fast. Is there something about the calm of being there a few hours before? Yeah, I mean, um, my my greatest mentor, um, it, the, the person that I probably learnt 95% of what I know about commentary from. Uh, was a guy called Reg Guttridge, who was a boxing commentator. But but Brian Moore, who, who I've talked about now, in the football field is as iconic as any commentator in, 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 in the history of British broadcasting. He would always say to me, and I, I don't think it's his original phrase, that fail to prepare and you prepare to fail. Now, commentators are 
creatures of habit usually. And we do have a countdown in our mind towards the kickoff, and we do need to be ahead of the game. If if we get caught in traffic, if I actually once got stuck in a lift in the hour before a game at the Amsterdam Arena, if somebody suddenly comes to you and say, oh, by the way, 15 minutes before the game, we want to do a pit, uh, thing pit side with you and whoever, you say, no, 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 no. I, I, I am now in, you know, I'm now in a flight path here. I, I have been arriving at this moment for the last 12, 24, no deviation. 15 days. Yeah, you, you cannot suddenly say, we've got a new commitment for you. It'll only take, those five minutes are everything. You know, so I'm, I am calm and smooth and usually in control as long as nothing goes wrong. <laughs> if something interrupts that build-up, the, the, the copious notes that I make before a game are Really, I mean, a psychologist would have a field day, but they're probably quite frightening. You know, you're <laughs> Are you handwritten? Oh, uh, well, yeah, only because I al I've always been handwritten, right. so why would I change? I'm yeah. computer literate, don't worry. But I mean, <laughs> I, I, I write it out because that's how I learnt from my GCSEs in the late 17th century when I took them. Um, so that's how it goes into my head. And those notes are absolutely pristine. I mean, they are really quite sad. Are they OCD uh, levels? Yeah, I'll show you some later. <laughs> but if how many times do I look at them during a, I mean hopefully I only ever use 10% of the information that's on there anyway because that's all that's going to be relevant during the course of a game there, there are some of my colleagues the there should be a crawler going across the bottom of the screen which says I've oh, effing well done this research you're effing well going to hear yeah, it you're getting this yeah, you yeah, like you're, you're gonna get it <laughs> um, hopefully I'm not one of those but that 10% you know I, I, I will probably look down but will possibly already be in my head and actually all that is is a comfort blanket it's just a safety net it's just it's just um, an illustration that I have done all the preparation that is necessary for this game if somebody stole it 30 seconds before we went on air I would probably go into a you know a hot sweat thinking how Complete on earth meltdown. am I going to get through but it's not because I'm going to read everything that's on there it's because it's gone and, and I've done the preparation and and that is that is my confirmation that is my guarantee that I have done enough prep for this game so that when the red light comes on um, hopefully I'm, I'm compliant. Strangely that if you're doing a live game and a lot of commentators will tell you the same if we're involved in some kind of preamble and uh, we're involved in bringing the teams out from the tunnel or there's an anthem or you know god forbid there's a, um, a minute silence on behalf of something or somebody um, how you manage that period between them handing to you and the kickoff very often sets the tone for how you feel for the game if you if, if i feel as if i've done that accurately tidily hopefully respectfully uh, sympathetically if, if i feel as if i've got the story in that period and obviously a lot of it's pre-scripted because you've got an idea how it's going to work then i'm far more confident when the referee blows the whistle and on you go if that goes wrong in some way then i kind of stumble into the commentary a little bit so all of this i'm telling you is all about how do we prepare prepare how much preparation we do we do answers easy enough enough to feel confident that when the referee blows the whistle and the script goes out of the window that you feel reasonably on top of it and ready for anything that might happen I like the idea of it being a comfort blanket I know exactly what you mean with that because so often you're going to these things and things change in the first five minutes anyway and you might never need any of it but the fact that you're yeah. there with it yeah I think um, uh, it's it's a bit of commentary commentary ease if you like that we I think as a group feel 
that there are certain facts and figures or thoughts that you will introduce in the first five or ten minutes um, of a game which sort of set the scene you know it, it's almost remember they haven't lost here for a year you, remember we're just four days on from the worst defeat they've ever and that's the kind of information which you feed in during what we all anticipate as football fans will be a, a bit of a sparring period at the end of the game interestingly in, a, in another life i um i commentated on rugby league for a while and i had to even though i grew up in a rugby league area um, I had to learn rugby league, and rugby league was wonderful in opening its doors and letting me in and, and, and learn it from the inside. But my co-commentator was an Australian guy called Brian Smith, who was fantastic for me. He was a coach. Um, he once said to me, you can't do that in rugby league, you know. The first hit of the game is the most important hit of the game. The first tackle that's made tells you how the next 79 and a half minutes are going to be played. And I've, I've kind of been mindful of that, perhaps, ever since as a football commentator, that you can't, we can't, be sure that we we can ease our way into a football match and and clearly all of that stuff that we might prepare for the first 10 minutes that is completely torn up if somebody scores in the first couple of minutes and um you know i did an fa cup final live which at the time was perceived to be as big a gig as a television commentator could have and there was a goal in the first minute well you know all, all of that that steady build-up of bringing the teams out at wembley and the national anthem and abide with me and here I am easing my way into the game. Well, you know, oh, wait, wait, wait. Louis Saab, that's not supposed to happen. What are you doing, Louis? I, I don't need a goal yet. I've got all this stuff to do yet. What are you doing? No, you don't. You, you commentate it and you have to be, you know, you have to be on guard and ready for, for, for whenever the moment comes. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had your notes go like out, well, not just out the window? Have I've you had them lost... get wet. Right, they get okay. wet so that I can't read them. And did, does that send you into the spiral a of like, bit. oh it, my it, word, what are we going to do? The, 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 the classic irony was that the times that they used to get wet was usually FA Cup first round yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you were on some jerry-built gantry, which <laughs> they'd put up by the side of the pitch. The when you needed those around. notes most, because you didn't know the plumber from the, <laughs> you know, the accountant from the teacher, so. Did you enjoy doing those? I enjoyed, yeah, I did. I enjoyed the the whole build-up really and the access um i think you know if you're to ask me the biggest single change stroke regret that i have seen in our game during the course of my career which you know as we know stretches 400 years it's it is the the worsening of the relationship between football and its media and i think both sides are responsible for it probably the media side and i don't divorce myself from newspapers or anything else i think we're all we're all responsible but you know what what is our job we we are all journalists our job is to go to the scene of the event and somehow relay a message back to the people who weren't fortunate enough to be there if we're relaying an inaccurate message or an exaggerated message or um a, a tainted message of some kind we're simply not doing our jobs and and football has come to have less and less trust in its media for various various reasons but you know back in the day when when I began I admittedly I was the same age as the players which obviously helped the relationship but they were my mates you know I spent so much of my time with them and so the trust and the bond between us was far more personal and therefore I, I don't know that I was ob as objective as I am now, because obviously with experience you gain object objectivity, which is an important part of journalism. But in terms of 
kind of being close to closer to the game. Um, I was much closer to the game in my local radio days than I, than I am now, and that that has changed because there are still a handful of managers who might um, trust me enough to tell me their lineup the day before the game or to give me some insight into who is injured and who might play and where how they're thinking. Um, but you you find that less and less now. So this huge uh, gap has appeared between football, so that the two two bodies that should be working together to, to, to communicate with the people that matter, the supporters, um, are actually often at, at, at loggerheads. So do, do you think at that point, um, not only it was, it was a benefit, but also it was a richer experience for supporters because people like you could be better prepared? Um, I don't know. I think I think every I, th I, I think uh, uh, the, the richer experience for the supporters you can break down into all kinds of areas. There, there will be people who insist that football was a more attractive spectacle um, in the 70s and 80s than it is now. Um, I think that any sport you can measure has moved forward, and and if if the players have got stronger and fitter and faster, and that has made the game more restrictive in some in some ways then I think that's just the advancement of the game. And I actually think the rules that, that, or the application of the laws of the game have moved forward. If you watch any game from the 70s and 80s now, you're talking about a 15 red card game, aren't you? I mean, yeah. the tackles were crazy because that was kind of the football then. I, I love the football now. I'm, I'm a great believer in, in contemporary music, contemporary uh, movies, contemporary television, and therefore contemporary sport. I think uh, it is what it is. What, what has changed with... Um, all kinds of things, mainly money stuff, um, it is you, you're not going to see the striker for Tottenham Hotspur in Sainsbury's. You're, you're not going to see Harry Kane in your local... And he's a great guy. I'm not saying he doesn't go to a supermarket, but he'd be a bit of an idiot to go to a supermarket at the moment because he'd never get out. Get mugged, so yeah. we're, we're, we're into a selfie age. And more than that, there's a kind of a, a new familiarity that's grown where people think they know people yeah. because they, they, their lives have been portrayed so graphically. I was at a game just yesterday working with Lee Dixon and as we left the stadium the, the number of people who sort of saw him go by go and then go hey Dixon I mean you wouldn't say that to any other you wouldn't go Hey, uh, postman, you're our postman, are you? You're our <laughs> postman, come here. Yeah, come, come and have a selfie with me. No, it's it, a sense of you, don't know Lee you don't know Lee Dixon. Why, you can't talk to him. You can't talk to anybody like that. You know, that's... Um, so, so, yeah, there is a sense of ownership. And, um, and, and I, think, I think the amounts of money involved in the game have created... If I call it a jealousy, that's, that might be the wrong word. It, it is... Um, a disasso disassociation. It, you, you live in a different, on a different planet to, I, to, to the one I do, and and therefore I I can't really relate to you. I can't really want to understand, and therefore I've got very little sympathy for you. So the, what's the first thing you hear when a footballer cocks up? You're on forty grand a week. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah. He still didn't want to cock up. He or she didn't want to cock up. That you know they are committed. They are trying. They have got pride and you know all the professional standards. But the fact that they are on 40k a week and you're not somehow makes it so much more difficult to forgive. And I think, in in addition to the to the whatever 140 character world that we live in now, 
um, where everything is sound by everything is headline and, and very little is, is given with any true depth or understanding, then it, it is, it's a, it's um, I can't say it's a difficult world for football because they're all living childhood dreams just like the players of the 60s and 70s were. But as, as I, you know, probably the, the best image I can give you is you just, you're just not going to bump into them in the street. Yeah, and it, uh, th there's a weird... Not your street. <laughs> yeah, so maybe on this one. <laughs> You're fine here. There's yeah. a weird sense of... Um, there's a weird sense of entitlement on behalf of fans that I've found. I, I don't know where it comes from, because you're absolutely right. It's not envy. I think in order to be envious of someone, you have to, on some level, feel like they've just done better than you have, just a little bit more, and there's a sense of connection that, well, oh, that could have been me. But for 99.9% .9 of us, it could never have been any no. of us. And it, it's a weird sort of sense of, well, it's not me, but you're earning that money, so I can shout this at you, or I can treat Absolutely. you this way. And it only happens to me to a degree. You know, I think it happens to people in the media, so that it's magnified times 100 when you're actually one of the performers down there in, in, in the arena. So it, it is, um, and I don't think it'll ever be repaired. I don't think anything, I, I, I've often thought about trying to write, I, I quite like the idea of writing fiction. and. Um, I have written fiction, it's just unpublished fiction. So, it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But, uh, you know, the, just some kind of dystopian view of football in the future, you know, that I'm uh, uh, trying to write, because I do think, I, I don't think football's hurtling off the edge of a cliff, but I think there are certain areas, and television is a, a very interesting area, where it's got to be careful and not leave its public behind to the point where it's taken them for granted to the degree that they fall out of love with the game. And I think a little bit of that is starting to happen. I think um, we've, we've got four 20-odd-year-olds who kind of come and go from this establishment <laughs> when they want some money. Um, and, you know, they, they probably more than anybody or anything keep me in touch with, you know, their thinking. I mean, to the point where uh, even though I'm one of the oldest commentators out there, I'm probably, you'll find the only commentator who mixes metres and yards in his commentaries, because I think half the audience are probably now think in terms of metres yep. and half think in terms of yards. And I'm, all, I'm not trying to be down with the kids. I can't never be down with the kids. Um, but, uh, but I'm just trying to respect and communicate with, with, with the breadth of audience that, that, that we have. And so similarly, I have um, a feel for how they consume their media. And even though the three guys in particular are into their football and will get excited by a great football match, they'll also get excited by a great FIFA match. Yeah. And football's got to be careful that they don't get more excited by that and find that more rewarding and something they can identify with better than the thing that they've got to pay. I mean, if you paid every subscription available now for all the football that is pay-per-view, you could spend close to £100 a month Oh, easily. Just to get access easily. to your football. And if you think about that, the, if you were into La Liga, perhaps, that mm. would have been on 11 sports this year. So you would have done Sky BT, 11. So, so the audience, done... the actual audience, and, and by the way, television audiences are what they This is not a part of political broadcast on behalf of terrestrial <laughs> television, but the 26.5 million peak audience that watched the England World Cup semi-final, which is just a ridiculous television figure, that's twice as many as the finale of Strictly or Jungle or anything that's you know absolutely out of the stratosphere that is beyond Royal Wedding that, that is that big the biggest television audience of the year but if you compare that to the 
two million peak that would watch a Super Duper Sunday on on Sky, or probably 1.7 million peak that would watch a Champions League quarterfinal on BT Sport. However many other people there are who are consuming it in different ways, and particularly consuming it communally um, in uh, in uh, uh, alcoholic establishments. Um, it's not the same engagement. It cannot possibly be the same engagement. And so at some point, when you can't afford football or you can't be bothered to pay the money for football or you kind of object to paying the money for football, you start watching football. And what I'm coming around to saying really is our 320-odd-year-olds have got lots of other things to do too. And they will pick and choose. They're as likely to watch Real Madrid as they are Southampton. Uh, they are uh, as likely to, uh, here come the police now, Ill illegally uh, stream it as they are to pay for it. Um, football's got to be careful. It's got to be careful that it isn't marginalising itself to a degree that it loses its hardcore audience. I, I, if I'm involved in like conversations with anybody from, say, FSF or something, and I understand and it's really important that there are bodies who represent the hardcore support for our game, the people who do get on the motorway every other Saturday and do go through the turnstiles and pay their money. But the, the, the man and the woman in the armchair are also football supporters. Even if they never go to a game, they are part of the football economy and they are part of the place that football holds in our national culture. And so we can't cut them off. We can't we, we can't sort of look down our noses. Well, they're not proper football fans, you know. It's the it's the guy who phones in, to, you know, to, to Robbie Savage and says, "Well, I wasn't actually at the game. I've never actually been to a game, but I still <laughs> think he should be sacked." Yeah, he sounds like a bit of an idiot, but actually, he's, you know, they're it's got all as much right to that say. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. If if you're taking an interest to pick up a phone or sit down in front of a television set to watch a football match. You're a football fan, and football's got to look after all of those people in order to retain its place at, at, in our affections and in our hearts. Uh, it's interesting what you said about the maintaining and repairing a relationship that is almost at breaking point, because a really good example of this would have been Gareth Southgate, right? And you've got a, a very good relationship with Gareth Southgate from having worked together before, but he went a long way to doing that for the England team, didn't he? Is there, is there a... A potential repetition of that that can be done or is that a one-off? Um, well the good news about Gareth Southgate he is everything that he appears to be. Not everybody in the world is everything they appear to be. Um, Gareth Southgate is that man. That is who he is and that is in his heart as well as his very shrewd head. He is, he is not a PR screen. Uh, so he does care as much as he, he appears and he does think as much as he appears to do. But if he were sitting here now he would tell you that had Harry Kane not equalised, uh, sorry, got the winning goal in the last minute of our first match of the World Cup finals, it might all be different. It is dependent upon results. There's no question about that. We, part of this kind of 20th into the 21st century edge that football has developed with all the money and the publicity and so on, is you need a W, an L's no good. Uh, um, Roy Hodgson, who is an equally good man, by the way, um, and uh, you know, it, I, I've got a, a higher regard for him as I have for Gareth, even though he was less successful as England manager. He is every bit as good as intelligent and an earnest man. Um, he often says that football is analysed from the final whistle back to the first whistle. It is played the other way. 
he goes absolutely mad at the manager who at the end of a 1-1 draw would say well we should have had a penalty in the third minute so therefore we won no because if he'd got that penalty in the third minute the rest of the game would have played, been played differently. You know, football is not programmed in that way. That's the wonderful thing about football. You don't know how an early goal... Teams score too early against good teams sometimes. You know, things change as a result of moments in football matches. But it, it's, it's, it's a web that goes outwards. It doesn't follow a straight line. You can't go back along that line and say, well, you made that substitution, you brought him off, and you know the, the guy you brought on made the mistake. If you hadn't made that, no, it doesn't work like that. But we do, we analyse it with glorious hindsight, and, and we judge with glorious hindsight, and we sack with glorious hindsight, and we... Um, demonise with glorious hindsight and and actually we're taking all the all the things that are joyous about football we're taking out we're, we're, we're all becoming analysts we're all sitting on a sofa you know with with a with a with our view on what well, I knew all along that that you know that would happen even though you had a bet on the other side if you happen to look at your, your slip there in your hand you didn't get no and, and it's great getting football wrong you know, it's great. Uh, the, the, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, again, because it's 20 years on, one of the commentary lines that, that, that people uh, uh, often quote back to me that I said at the time, and Solskjaer has won it, could have been the most incorrect thing I'd ever said at any stage in my career. If Bayern Munich had gone down the other end and equalised, they'd gone to extra time and gone to penalties, and they would have won. Yep. Uh, and Solskjaer would want it. I, I would be paying huge amounts of money to our archive to have that erased <laughs> forever and a day. It is actually the, the most cardinal sin of commentary is to call the race before they've reached the finishing line. It's Devon Locke. You know, it's you can't you, you mustn't really do that. But I did it and I got away with it. So but I would have been with, with the benefit of hindsight, instead of being praised for, you know, this this famous line, I would have been demonized for it. And that's that's the fine line that commentators have. So for a footballer out in the field, again, times 100. Uh, I, I suppose with, with Gareth, though, where he... There was a really telling point for me at the end of Roy Hodgson's time with England that he sat in the, the press conference and he said, look, I don't know what you want me to do here. Um, and like, I, and he's I understand... Smarter. Yeah, he, he's a lot smarter, Gareth, yeah. He, he, he was just a little bit more subtle the whole way through. And I don't, for a second claim that Gareth Southgate thought out the entire media strategy. I think, in fact, the FA did a brilliant job of really yeah. humanising the players. You'll be surprised, actually. A lot of it comes from Gareth. Right, OK. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to tell you a, a tale out of school now, which um, I, I don't think is public, so it's exclusive. <laughs> um, but, it, but it shouldn't surprise you that, that uh, Gary Neville actually introduced, within the Hodgson regime, um, a system whereby... Um, a member of the FA, immediately after the game, monitored a, a, a chosen dozen news and Twitter uh, sites and, and, and accounts to see what the reaction had been to the performance that had just been given. So that at least if Roy believed they'd played well and everybody else believed they'd played terribly, he would be briefed and he would have been intelligent enough then to know that you can't just go in and say, well, it's a disappointing result, but I thought we were absolutely fantastic because that is what really, that's what really kills you in the modern, when you seem to be out of touch, when the fans are in outrage and you're still being defensive, defending what appears to be the indefensible. And that was very, very smart. 
I mean, Gareth has that kind of smartness generally. So most most of the, and I don't want to call it a, a kind of a, a PR, because that's not what I say. He is what he is, Gareth. He he, he wants he, he wants England to be England's team. He wants it to be the nation's team. He, and he's fortunate, in a sense, that one or two of the bigger personalities that we've had in the team in the past, who've been among our best players, he hasn't really had somebody who's been over and above the rest of them. So he's managed to foster a club spirit. Um, the guys like each other's company, and they did in the Hodgson in the Hodgson Lewington regime. They all got on great then. I think a lot of those um, club differentials were taken out during that period. So it was a happy camp under Roy. They just got beat by Iceland, yeah. basically, is what happened. I mean, if we'd lost, if we'd drawn our opening game of the World Cup finals. If we'd lost that penalty shootout, I can remember. I was, I was there. I was in the in the stand, and I, I can remember the moment at one all after Carl Walker kind of made. Two years it. earlier, we were beating Russia one nil in the opening game. And the header comes of, in at the back post, and um, one nil going on three nil. We were really, really good that that night. No, I'm saying we. Um, we'll come to that in a minute, <laughs> but. Um, it, the equaliser was a freak. It was one of the Berezutsky boys. He, it was he, unbelievable. It, it was just a nonsense of a goal. It felt and like it was in the air for an age. kind of flawed well. the whole thing. And the difference between those two moments. And Gareth will tell you the same. You know, and, and, and listen, you know, Gareth brought in a, a, a tactical shape, which was, was a little bit more 21st century. Um, he brought in all kinds of things which, which, have, which have worked. But they wouldn't have worked if we'd drawn our opening game quite the way that they did when we won our opening game. We, we, had a, we were playing the dog and duck in our second match. We, that, that was only ever going to be one result. We lost our third match. We um, drew our next match, did we? Was the penalty shoot out next? Uh, yep. Yeah. Colum so we drew our Columbia, next match. Sweden and yeah. Croatia. Yeah. And it, but it, I can <laughs> well, remember we came the, heroes. there was a 10 minute <laughs> period or a 15 minute period after the after the goal, after the penalty, when Carl Walker had given away the penalty, where you felt like this weird shift Being here. back to like 20 Being years here. ago. Like all the England fans of the terraces just suddenly, just as if like none of the previous six months had happened, where we were all so optimistic and everyone couldn't wait. Two, suddenly it's like, two oh, months save before the Euros, we, we beat Germany in Berlin. I mean, okay, it was a last minute goal, and stuff, but we played so well that night. I mean, it, it, it is, I'm afraid it's all about, it is all about one drawn lost it it really is i'm afraid and and that's where we we've, we've got to with the with, with the game and to the point where i i am hearing all kinds of things now uh, uh, on reading all kinds of stuff on twitter about do we really want to get promoted now you you hear this sort of from clubs do what do we want to go to the premier league for and and you know get hammered every week just to come back down again and and then somebody say yeah but the money yeah yeah actually football's in a strange kind of phase and there is a bit of a i don't think it's just because i'm you know probably older than the average person looking at this but but people are kind of leaning back to one or two of the old values of the game i think i think a lot of you know 20 year olds and teenagers are actually starting to question what is this about this game we're lucky that we've got Messi and Ronaldo we really are we're lucky that we've had those guys for the last 10 12 years who are I mean world sports stars you know up, up with Federer and you know whoever whoever you, you whoever you want to, to name in whatever sport Tiger whatever um, we're, we're kind of lucky we've had these two iconic figures um, because that I think that's helped the game along and particularly the, the rivalry between them. 
What happens when they? What happens next with football? What, what, what's going to be new about football that's going to grab us? A Champions League where the same teams play every year, a World Cup with where every nation in the world automatically goes to the finals. I mean, what, what, what are we doing to the game? I mean, we've just had apparently the most successful World Cup of all. And they want to change it. You know, we have just had a Champions League knockout phase, which has just knocked everybody's socks off night after night. And they want to change it. I mean, at what point does, does the football public say, do you know what? No, 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 enough. Do you allow yourself to um, sort of delve into the, the dark recesses of social media to see what the general populace thinks? Do you I, use that as a tool? I, I mean, as far as Twitter's concerned, um, I have developed a policy which is now my policy. I, I started my Twitter account in just before Euro 2008, uh, which I think was pretty close to the first year of Twitter. And when I had 3,000 followers, it was fantastic. I had a proper feedback on uh, from our public, uh, people who were watching and caring about our output, who had constructive ideas on how it might be better, how it might be modernised, how it, 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 it might be refined. And I could actually communicate with these people. It was actually a wonderful invention for me, Twitter, at that time, until I, that 3,000 became, 30,000 became. And then to the point where not only don't you look at it, because you know, how many times do you want to be called to see before you think, do you know what? <laughs> Carry on. It's really it doesn't matter anymore. On you go. On it, it, and and the very worst thing that anybody in my position can do as a communicator is find themselves becoming divorced from the people, our public, the people that actually pay my wages and build all these golf courses that I own behind. <laughs> um, uh, I'm kidding, buddy. Um, <laughs> Uh, because once you start to think, oh, what do you know? Then, then you're done for. You're absolutely done for. So I never do that. I never lose track. During the course of a live game, which is where most of my app mentions will, 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 will get filled up, my marvellous wife um, will tend to look at them on my behalf. And she system. will alert me to any recurring criticism. If I've said something which might have offended somebody or a group of people, and particularly if it starts to trend in some way, it, it, it starts to develop a life of its own, then she would make me aware of it. I mean, the rest of it, with the greatest good in the world, is it's just an opinion. It's people's opinions. It, uh, the, the last thing that I want to do it, it, as, a, as a communicator, as a broadcaster, is upset people. I, I know that because of the the kind of tr tribal fanatical nature of football fandom, which is again what what pays my wages, that the interest, the level of depth of interest that and and, and involvement that people have. That obviously, if you're a Spurs fan and I say something nice about Arsenal, you're oh, well, made my mind up about him then. Anyway, <laughs> we know where he come, he's coming from. That's fine. That's all cool. But. The, the very thought that I might say something which is insensitive or, or, or downright um, uh, insulting and offensive is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to, to avoid that by not treading on any eggshells. And when people say, ah, oh, it's political correctness, I, I, listen, I'm a great fan of political correctness. Most political correctness is very, very correct. And it's actually just being considerate. It's political considerate 
consideration rather than political correctness. And I'm a great fan of it. And of course, our views change, our vocabulary changes. The words that we used to describe people who happen to be homosexual, people who happen to be heterosexual, people who happen um, to, to be black and the people who happen to be... It, all of that has changed. So clearly our perceptions and our understanding of our differences is changing and all of that is wonderfully healthy and I hope to be able in, in, in a tiny way as a communicator to help with that process to, um, as, as Reg Guttridge, my mentor, always used to say, to be inclusive rather than exclusive. Never commentate to the England manager, commentate to White Van Man, commentate to everybody, you know, welcome everybody in. Um, so I, I want to do all, all of those things, um, but the the pitfalls, the I don't mind the haters uh, on social media. The people I can't stand are what I call the buzzards. The people who are actually circling above, almost watching down, saying, did he just say that? And then it becomes official. And then the next thing, because of the nature of Twitter, the original quote or the original message has disappeared. It is now official that you are a racist or you, you are you know, whatever you are, misogynist, whatever. That, that, uh, and now the, the trial begins and, and very soon, within 20 minutes, the judgment. <laughs> trial uh, by Twitter jury. Yeah. yeah, and it's dangerous stuff. I mean, I've been there quite recently. I can quote you a hundred examples, well, not a hundred, hopefully, maybe 10 examples of stuff where, and they give you, what they should do is always give you a pause for thought. And sometimes you'll resolve it in your mind and think, I'm sorry, I, you, I, I'm just never going to open my mouth if what I said there was wrong. But other times you might think, okay, I won't use that word again. I mean, the, the, you know, the worst night I've ever spent in a football stadium was in May 1985 in the Heisel Stadium. Now, as, as it happens, I don't quite know who it was who influenced me to think this way, but the words um, disaster, tragedy and catastrophe have never appeared in a Clive Tilsey commentary ever since. Loris Carriers let the ball slip through him in a Champions League final. Maybe a calamity, <laughs> probably something a bit stronger than that. <laughs> calamity is kind of one of those slightly onomatopoeic words, which sort of is a bit like a clown falling over. But it's certainly not a disaster, and it's certainly not a tragedy, because people die in disasters and tragedies. So I w I'm interested to know a little bit more about your your filter system. Um, I think that's amazing that you are, that you and your your wife share that. Well, you can't ignore you. You cannot ignore what people are saying about you, even if you don't agree with it. You you can't you can't suddenly rise to this cloud where where you can. You, I, I think some some people in my business do, and I think they're wrong. I I've always felt the biggest crime that a commentator could commit during a commentate during a commentary is to sound like they'd rather not be there. And, and there are certain commentators who think this game's wasting my time and kind of say so. If it's a bad match, call it a bad match. But there are the million people listening or watching who would rather be doing what you're doing than, 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 what, the, than what they're doing. So I, I would never try to, uh, to, you know, to, 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 to put on blinkers or, or, or earmuffs and, and just block it all out because I think it's important that you are constantly monitoring some kind of reaction to you other than that of your boss, other than the guy who's employing you. But it, the, the nature of it, and I'm, I'm kind of now so long in the tooth that I'm not easily offended, uh, certainly not by insults. Um, I'm very, very lucky to have a very, very happy life, have a, a wonderful wife, wonderful family, wonderful job, and as things stand, my health, and they're, you know, they're the things that matter. And strangely, in 
in the period of the last few years when I've done less commentaries and I've spent less time actually in press rooms and dressing room corridors talking football 24-7, I think I've probably got a better perspective as a commentator now, just having removed myself from doing fewer games and, and actually watching more more football than, than actually being there and, discuss, and discussing it with the guys that I might knock it around a golf course with or you know bump into in the pub or whatever so that I think that's that's kind of helped me but that doesn't mean that there's a that it, Twitter's not an opinion poll it's it's not a research opinion poll it is that the loudest voice counts and so you've got to you've got to take any insults that come with a healthy pinch of salt you can't ignore them but you've got to take them with a pinch of salt now clearly if you're not as lucky in your life as I am then online abuse of one kind or another or intimidation of one kind or another can affect different people in different way different ways i think i'm fairly well insulated from it by the nature of my life um, but i do respect the the dangers of particularly to to other younger people of of that kind of online abuse and, and you do need to build up a filter does your how does your wife take it though? Because I can imagine my missus would probably absolutely hate the idea of. Initially, she wanted to reply to everyone. Yeah, <laughs> and she feels a sense of real injustice when she knows that they're wider the mark, particularly in terms of character judgment. Um, but she does run a, a, a PR company, and so therefore, she's fairly in tune with the way that media works, and 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 of course. Without sounding like an old cynic, I respect the changes in the consumption of media and I've tried to move with the changes in consumption of media and it, and it is changing by the day. But it is quite cyclical. And while YouTube creates this wonderful democracy which has, in many areas of performing arts, removed the middlemen and, and enabled acts and, and, and performers of one kind or another to get right out there and connect directly with their public, as soon as they start to become successful, as they soon as they become YouTube, they get an agent. And then they get contracts with brands. And therefore, listen, I say, I'm sounding like an old cynic now. I really, I love my job. If there's anything that I love more than football, it's television and the, and the work and working, the feeling of team working with people to produce a live outside broadcast. And that's still all excites me. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't do it if it didn't. But I, I, you, you do, it's not a cynicism, it's just a, a bit of perspective. Uh, I I, I, the, the, and, and, and I'm able to put all of the nonsense surrounding the game into perspective through my experience. If you're 25 years of age and you're making your way, you, you haven't got that perspective. I think that's just a, a much uh, tidier and more eloquent um, way of expressing the feelings that most young people feel when they watch the, their favourite YouTuber or their yeah. favourite person on Instagram suddenly, is, like you said, it's a bit of a tidal yeah. wave. They get massive popularity. We feel more pressured by our peers, don't exactly. we, at a young age? Exactly. Of course we do, yeah. I mean, the, uh, you know, my peers are starting to die. I'm going to lots of funerals now, you know, <laughs> so you, you, know, you, you do get to that stage. But it, and, and actually, strangely, in, in this world of discrimination and prejudice, I, I think that I'm starting to face a certain amount of ageism, you know, because I am 64 years of age, people might automatically assume that I'm out of touch or... or but if, if you take your job and, 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 and blogging and influencing are very often jobs, if you take them seriously and you, and 
you look at them analytically and, and watching and, and listening to myself back is still the most important thing that I do in terms of trying to learn and improve uh, because I am my own uh, biggest critic. If you can develop that kind of roundedness, if you can start to see it for what it is, it, at whatever age you are, and, and I, I, I gather the, the highest paid YouTuber last year was an, an eight-year-old who opens presents in America, opens toys. I hadn't even seen this. So, I, you know, I mean, so... <laughs> Shows how far the, wider the mark I have. Yeah, you're, you're right. Much, so, you're yeah, much You need to get down with the kids. Yeah, yeah the real kids. Yeah, <laughs> to get down with the toddlers. Um, but as I say, if, 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 w once it becomes... It, as a football fan, you can view football in whatever way you like. Football owes you nothing. You, you pay for everything that you get, whether it's a replica shirt, whether it be your Sky subscription, whether it's going through the turnstile. And actually, as long as you're not being abusive and racially abusive, whatever, you can say whatever you like about anybody. You can have any opinion you want. Once you actually become part of the business, in, 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 in your way, in, in my way, in, in any kind of respect, then certain, not responsibilities, but you, you, yeah, you have a responsibility to your own professional pride to start to analyse what it is you do. What, what is your function in this? And whenever I speak to, to broadcast students, journalists, students, I start at that. You know, I start by, come on, take, it, take a step back and look from the consumer's point of view because they're the people that we're serving. They're the most important people. And if I'm not commentating in such a way, when 26.5 million people are watching a World Cup semi-final, it's pretty much everybody. I mean, it's... I am commentating to your, the, the friend of yours who watches 15 football matches a week and I'm commentating to your auntie Edna who watches one a year. It's just because it's the semi-final and she's watching it that There time. is an argument for explaining the offside law at some stage during a, a match to 26.5 million people because as Reg Guthridge always used to say, you need to be inclusive. He also used to talk about that maths class that we've all been in where you sat in the back row and you've got half an hour in and you think I haven't understood a word of this, but you're not prepared to put your hand up and ask. I used to get stick on Twitter for reminding people when about the away goals rule during Champions League. The, the stick that I got is fine. Yeah, yeah, we know that, idiot. Yeah, well, there might be somebody sat next to you who I'm explaining it to who isn't brave enough to say, so well, I just wonder what, how that worked. I, I just, oh, it's only when they draw. Okay, I've got, that's fine. It's, the, the, uh, Reg used to murder me for saying, of course. And uh, listen to your next commentary by somebody else. You won't hear it from me. He said, every time you say, of course, if you're saying, of course, he played here for his club uh, in the cup final uh, just last year, you're saying, listen, uh, I know half of you know this. Uh, I'm now talking to the numbskulls over here right. who, who don't know <laughs> enough about it. So I'm going to say, of course. And so you know, I, I'm not putting you... I'm one of you, look. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm one of you. We know that, but they don't know that. I said, no, if a piece of information is worth using, use it. You know, use it. That's, your, that's your, how you editorialise. If it, if it is trivial information that everybody knows, then there's no point in, in using it. And that, that kind of insight is, I hope, as applicable now to a young guy or, or woman of uh, 15, 16 years of age who's just trying to put something out online with their views on football. I hope that I would be able... What, what can I pass on to them? Very little, really. But just watch yourself back. Ask yourself how... Who, who you're trying to reach. Ask, them, sir, ask yourself how they will view it, whether you're broadcasting for yourself or whether you're broadcasting to them, because that's what we are, communicators. Identify your audience. And the audience for... A Europa League games highlights with no English club, uh, you know, even when ITV had it, 
is 800,000. So it's 800,000 hardcore fans. You can commentate slightly differently than you commentate a World Cup semi-final to 26.5 million. Think it. Think it through. It's it, it, the, difference, the biggest difference between radio and television is nothing to do with how much you say or anything like that. It's, in television, you're not as important. It's a visual medium. So consequently, you are only the accompaniment. But it is more a job of the mind than the heart. Radio, you plug in and away you go. And, you know, just colour me, colour me in, you know, just, just paint these pictures for me. Get me involved. I'm not there. I'm back in the day when European Cup ties weren't live on TV, people in Liverpool used to say, we, we used to put the wireless in the middle of the table and we used to, and you were in Sofia or Bucharest or whatever, and we used to watch the game through. I absolutely love that. That's radio. That's radio. Television is far more a question of listening to what the director's saying, watching the pictures, picking your moment when to speak, just to try to augment, just to try to amplify that that's that's all you it's it is a cerebral <laughs> if i've got a brain it is a cerebral exercise and and i think not enough broadcasting in the 21st century because it's so instant is is cerebral and if as you suggested to me um major television presenters view an extraordinary event and the first thing they do is pick up their phones i'm sorry I'm not old-fashioned. That you're getting it wrong. You're getting your precedent. It's not about you. It's not about what. It's no, no. You, you, you've got a vehicle to, to, you know, to express your views, and you're fortunate enough to have that. That that second screen is for the people who haven't got that. It's for the people what is for your public. It's for them to say what what they think about it. The second screen shouldn't. The second screen shouldn't come into effect. I, I cannot do a commentary and and tweet during. I can't look away from the pitch. I can't look away the pitch for three seconds. I can't do that. You know, I'm running a huge risk if I do that, let alone disengaging my brain from what I'm doing. Certainly opening up yourself to a huge amount of criticism if you made the slightest error as well. And um, I'm interested to know, do you have someone that you ask to almost mentor you now? Do you have um, people that you still value their critique? It'll sound very arrogant if I say no, won't it? You have to say someone no. <laughs> you have to, you've got no choice. Um, not the same. Uh, I am, uh, uh, no names, but uh, um, two, two or three fairly prominent younger commentators do ask for my input on a regular basis. Uh, and I regret it because <laughs> I tell it like it is. Um, uh, is there, is there a, a two way feedback there, though? Because obviously, yeah. people that are maybe up and coming they're also giving you information that you can yeah use. i think you're looking at my biggest critic as i say i i i very rarely watch a game back and think oh you absolutely nailed that there's usually something that i'm not particularly comfortable with that's quite healthy though right yeah i think so that means you're, you're never resting you're I'm, never i'm pretty committed uh, i mean i think i would hope that if you ask the people that i work with what i'm like to work with they'd they'd say oh you know relaxed easy going fun sort of guy unless you show a lack of commitment or a lack of thought for what we do. And, um, and then I, I can be really crabby. If I, if I don't think somebody's trying quite as hard as they should do. Um, I, it is, one of the other big differences between radio and TV is we are a team in television, a huge team. And um, the guys who put the scaffolding together that I stand on, the, the, the riggers, the sound engineers, the men and the women who twiddle the knobs and, and, and put all the 
uh, the wires in. They're all as important to what we arguably more important to what we do than I am. Um, and and there is a, there's a real democracy within television. Everybody gets on, you know, everybody respects each other. And particularly in the days when it happens still with England games, when we all travel away together, we're all in the same hotel. We all have a big meal, you know, before and everybody's there. Everybody's there. And it's not like, you know, all the stars sit at one end. They're, they're, we are very much a team and I like that. And actually when football, football people come on board with us as pundits it gives them a little bit of that dressing room feel they that they miss they get a little yeah. bit of that back and then you, you become quite strident even though I've got many many great friends who work for the BBC Guy Mowbray's a really good friend we get quite competitive in terms of you know they win an award we win an award whatever because that you, you it, that's my team who do I support I support the ITV football team they're my team um, tell me about some of the moments that you've seen other commentators have. So is there any ones that you've looked at and you've gone, wow, he's done well there. That was that was pretty special. Yeah, I'm not a very good person to watch a, a match with, I'm afraid. Really? Do oh, you, I'm a bitch. Do, do you... <laughs> I'm a bitch. You find yourself being like, shit. <laughs> Useless, I wouldn't have said that. In brackets, in Ivo. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I, if I'm critical, I mean, if I'm critical of myself, I'm entirely be critical. <laughs> got to do it to everyone else, got to be consistent. I think that <laughs> if, um, if, you, if you were to ask me, if there are any young aspiring commentators out there who think I'm any good and want to know who I would suggest they listen to, and obviously there are commentators in other sports, cricket and golf and so on, where, where the whole discipline is totally different. But if you're talking about calling a team game, look up a guy called Pat Summerall, who sadly is not with us anymore. Um, if, if you've ever played Madden, the NFL game, uh, Pat Summerall was John Madden's straight man. Uh, John Madden was the ex-coach. Um, I mean, w when you join a, a television football team as a pundit, there are some who just come in and think, oh, well, I played the game and so I'll just do my bit and go. But what we want you to do is become part of our team to actually recognize and understand that a match is as important to us as it used to be for you as a player or a manager. And so our, our standard and our pride in what we do is, is at the same level. And, and getting that, that feel, that, that team thing, is, is very important indeed. Some are all just listen to him, the way he uses the words. And, football, and American football is lots about numbers. It's a lot about, you know, third and six. Th 36 left on the clock or, or, or whatever um, but just very simple straightforward does what it says on the tin words but delivered with a sense of building drama not melodrama not screaming shouting just using the language properly using words that we all use using a, a common vocabulary not trying to be poetic or bring something to, that your sixth form classics teacher gave you you know 50 years ago to the to the table, not actually trying to come up with a memorable line, but using the, la I'm, I'm a great protector of the language, I hope, just using the language properly to slowly build drama, inform, entertain to a degree, but, 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 but never actually um, trespass on people's natural in enjoyment of the sport. Listen to Pat Summerall. So, uh, I, I, I assume that's something you've tried to take into your country then, it's efficient with your work? Yeah, I used to be really smart-ass once upon a time. Uh, I still can get, I, that's, that's my biggest failing when I lean that way. If you ever hear me 
laugh at something I've just said, it's because I hated it. Because <laughs> the moment it came out of my mouth, well, and you get this I nervous a little, <laughs> it was a joke, everybody. <laughs> so you can all laugh now. No, what Have you got okay, an example? Right. Is there Ooh. anything you've done that you actually cringe that you're like, oh, what was no, I doing? I've got a little little department here which just cancels it all out. Try and lock it away. Delete, 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 until it's gone. <laughs> um, uh, oh, there'd be millions. Um, but uh, but less now than, than there used to be. And I used to try to, I think I was a little bit, I, I, I think that, I think it's good to come up with words. I, I, I'll tell you something, I, I, we're talking the day after Brighton versus Manchester City, the, the, the game that clinched the title for Manchester City. And the single word that I was happiest with was after Gundogan scored the free kick to make it four, and so it's done, it's absolutely done. And as he ran to the City fans, I said, memories. And I don't know why I said it in those terms, but actually, I, and then I had to kind of, I, I said, you don't forget days like this. And actually, if you're a Manchester City fan, Brighton will always be etched in your heart. And if you were behind that goal where Ilkay Gundogan scored, and, and you knew that was the mo they're not going to come back from four, you know, um, then that's kind of probably the moment you'll remember, you know, and, and I was pleased with that because that, it, the game was probably done at 3-1. When, when Mares scored, it was probably done. For Brighton to get two more and bring Liverpool back into the equation was unlikely, but that confirmed it. And you could even see in the reaction from... from it's collective from, relief, from, Yeah, it? from Guardiola and everybody. They knew that that was it. They'd done it. And I think that is a little a little drift of me standing behind a goal once upon a time. I've stood behind a goal a couple of times this season in the away end with my son, not telling you who, <laughs> uh, but it, I met people I didn't think I was going to meet. Um, but um, yeah, that's been good to actually just keeping me in touch with stuff. But um, you know, when you get held behind for half an hour after the game and then get led out to the hand-picked violent people of the opposing <laughs> side who've been waiting oh thanks and carefully gathered together <laughs> thank you very much yeah yeah away you go it was like something from game of thrones you know it's, what like we've got a pickaxe or something very we're different go experience with, you know? then yeah. isn't it we're the dragons you know yeah. we're not in the media yeah. suite anymore no that's that's not weird so um yeah but memories and i was pleased with that can i pick you up on a few of yours then if we were to just off the top of your head, Who the might? ones that that you um, comms like it doesn't necessarily have to be your favourite comms lines, but just ones that really stand out in your mind. Because for me, the the obvious one would be the the Wayne Rooney one in the in the sense that it, yeah. for me, I, I was, I'm not I was the, his age. I'm not the judge of that, Ben. That's for you. That's fine. And if that if if you like that, fine. But there'll be somebody who hated it. It's not for me. I'm not. I, I don't think it's. I'm not. I'm not being. I'm, I'm not overtly modest. Don't worry. Um, I think I'm good. You know. Um, and and if that was a good, you know, if that was good, then f fine. Sure, remember the name. I mean, there's a lovely story that goes behind that. There was a. Um, I, I used to work in Merseyside on the local radio station, Radio City, and and so I knew quite a lot of Everton Liverpool fans. They were friends, and um, this guy had come up to me at a Graham Sharp testimonial event that I was supporting. Uh, this was probably three months before, and I was aware of Wayne Rooney because he'd been a big star of the FA Youth Cup run that they'd had the season before, and of course he was involved early in the season. And um, but this guy before that had said to me, "Hey, Wayne Rooney, remember the name?" He'd actually said, "Wayne Rooney, remember the name?" Now the best part of the story 
is that about six months later, I was at some other testimonial function. I see the same guy. I say, hey, and he said, yeah, he says, his brother's going to be even better, John Rooney. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, thought, yeah, you're... What's John Rooney ever done, you know? <laughs> there was another guy, no, he, gave, he gave me another name too, somebody else who was in the Everton Youth team and never made it. So he got one out of three, but it was the only one I <laughs> actually used on air, yeah. <laughs> is, there any, is there any other um, moments where you've, uh, in, not necessarily even just your comm time, but you've enjoyed being there? Is there oh, any that, um, you, that you've gone like, I haven't well, enjoyed. I'm, 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 I feel fortunate now, because that's something that I get. Yeah. When, I, when I get... When I get sent to games, occasionally I'll have that little pitch myself moment. I have to like remind myself what my, some of my other mates are doing, for example. Yeah, that they definitely. Would give their right hands. Oh, to listen. I mean, if if I ever wanted to, to I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a particularly, a, I'm not particularly active on social media because I think it's a double-edged sword. And I think if you play the game, then you've got to live by the rules of the game. And I don't particularly like the rules of the game. I think it's a little bit vain, a lot of it. And I hope that I hope. I've got enough else in my life that, that, than, than to need to, to, to be vain about my views or whatever. You know, you'll hear my views uh, during, a, during a commentary. But if I had a chance to have a little camera, it's those moments when we put the microphones down at the end and I turn to whoever it is, Glenn Hoddle, and go, wow. Yeah. Whoa, what about that? You know, and, and that, I mean, I, 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 I get a sense of anticipation and expectation for every single game that I go to. I really, really love my job and I've always done the preparation. So I've, I've been thinking about this game for two or three days beforehand. So yeah, it, the build-up is always the same, but occasionally, yeah, it, it's not easy to be surprised after all the things I've seen, but occasionally you see something in, and, and you do. And, and if you turn to somebody who's actually been and done it, which I inevitably am because the co-commentator is one of those people, and you're thinking, whoa, what about that? You know, then that's that's, and that is football. I mean, if if you if you are stupid enough to have heard something I said about four hours ago in this interview, about how we're in danger of taking away the thrill of the game with all our analysis and all our judgment and all our, he's good, he's bad, he's up for it, he's not up for it, he'll kiss the badge, he'll never, you know, all of that, all of those judgments we make of people we've never met, the whole, hey, Dixon, Dixon, come here, come here, <laughs> and, and all of that, you're taking away, if you're not careful, you're going to take away all of that childish, innocent joy and surprise that football gives us. That That's why... You know, that's why it's the national game in most countries in the world. That There is very little else that's so continu... That, you know, team, how many really big team games are there in, in world sport? I mean, most most of the stars outside of football, of world sport, play individual games. You think about it. OK, basketball, it's, the States is a bit different because their sports they tend to play and virtually nobody else can play them. And anybody who's any good goes to the States to play them. So the big the big games there, yeah, if, if you really... If you love a big NBA franchise or something, then you're going to get that involvement. And that's a pretty continuous game, even though it goes on a smaller court. You score, we score, yours. Football's got, it's a low scoring game. You know, three's a lot. Score three goals in a game is a lot. So it's different from many. So, and, and then it's a continuous game and it, it every touch influences the next five touches. When, when, you're, when you're writing the script for FIFA, which I used to do, it, it's like a big family tree. And you start with a corner, and then there are good corners and bad corners, and you write 10 lines then for good corner and 10 lines for bad corner. And then from good corners, they branch out again into 
good low corner, good long corner, good short corner, good, you know, good driven corner, and you write 10 lines for each of those. And that actually gives you a picture because you start with a corner and then you've no idea what's going to happen. It's not like there is one way of taking a court. I mean, if you get a, um, um, forgive my ignorance of hockey, is it called a penalty? Well, it's not a penalty, uh, a short corner. There's about two, three things they'll do at a short corner, aren't they? Basically, they'll knock Set it in the middle moves, and try and yeah. score, yeah. I mean, how many different corners can, I mean, if you've, if, how many different corners are we seeing, let alone free kicks and... I had no idea you had to write the script. I just assumed that they it were It was kind a of really, like... really shit script when I started doing <laughs> FIFA. FIFA is made in Vancouver, uh, and it's made mainly by British guys in Vancouver, but at that time, it, it was written, I think, by Canadians. Right. And, uh, which is, I'm not suggesting that people from North America <laughs> know nothing about football, okay? I not, I, oh, how many cameras here? I'm going to say to all of them. I'm not prejudiced here, um, but it, what it was, was um, I, I had said I used to be too smart ass. it was too smart ass. so if, if there's a line about, oh, he's bust the onion bag or something, something stupid like that, fine, once, but if you play 15 games of FIFA in, a, in an afternoon, which you would very possibly do, very, very possibly do, you might bust the onion bag 12 times, and and then you're really thinking that is really, really shit. So it was full <laughs> of shit lines like that. So I just said no. Rather as, as I say with television, that you're not as important. The soundtrack's not as important in television. It's television, really. FIFA's television. If 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 it was a radio game, then the words would be far more important. But the soundtrack should be unobtrusive. It should be in the background. Nobody buys FIFA for the commentary. That's not what they buy it for. What, what actually EA had to learn, for, and, and which I campaigned for, was that people are buying Pro Evo because the gameplay's better. What you need to do is get your gameplay to the, you've got all the licenses, you've got all the teams, you're not London United or whatever, but people are still buying Pro Evo because the gameplay's better, and FIFA made their gameplay better than Pro Evo, and that's where they went forward. It was nothing to do with me or my commentaries or, my, or the lines, so I tried to write a more neutral script for the game, which actually made it far easier for the AI guys to apply because all the lines were fairly short and succinct and they, they linked together and they were far better, easier for the intelligence to pick up. Did you enjoy doing it? I actually write the script was um, laborious. Um, the recording um, was as hard as I ever work. Um, it used to, they used to have five eight-hour days, uh, one after another, in a, in a little in a hovel in Wardour Street in Soho in London, yeah, in a booth. Uh, and one and a half of the days would just be the names. And you used to do th three of everything. Beckham, Beckham, Beckham! <laughs> Smith, Smith, Smith. And, and we used to have to get, used to have to manage the voice during, during the course of the week so that they'd give me, you know, a whole script full of goals on one day. And well, they, I'm sorry, they're all going to sound different by the, because my voice is going to be different at the end of the day. If I shout, if I have 4,000 goals in one day, the 4,000 is going to sound an awful lot different. Oh. <laughs> so um, uh, they, um, uh, they actually, I think, learned quite a lot from me. And, and the great irony of, of FIFA is um, uh, that, in the end, I recorded so much, they didn't need me anymore. They only ever needed me to top up. So, to do... And they used to pay me by the day. I, and I, <laughs> I put all these, all these lines in, and they said, well, we only really need 
um, a couple of intros and a few names for it. It's only one day this year. What have I done? You've just got to get the, the relevant stuff, the yeah. stuff that's kind of time sensitive. Yeah. So, God, that's mad. So I did myself out a load of dough. <laughs> you worked too hard on the, on, on, on the five day week. But I, I did go over to Vancouver and um, I did um, a, a couple of seminars for the people who make it. Uh, which obviously they invited and paid for me to go and Vancouver's a beautiful city and they really looked after me and I, I, I there was a real team spirit there at, at EA and it was a very successful product still is um, so um, yeah I've got an, uh, obviously it, it was a big I think there was actually a part of my life when these 20 odds that we've got in the house now were 12 and 13 and 14 when I, I think what EA liked about me is that I was the father of uh, sons who were playing the game and so I understood the importance of the game in their lives and so I understood the importance of the game to me into my career and so I wanted what went out there not to be full of onion bags I wanted it to be full of things that I might say um, and of course um, you, you get in the nature of life you the other parents at school say, oh, I'm fed up of hearing your voice in, in our house all day long, which is, which is kind of fun. Um, but I think there was probably a time, I'll tell you a lovely story actually, from um, a very, very special romantic holiday that Susan and I took um, to, the, to the Middle East. And um, we went to, what, to, where were we? Um, just outside Amman, I think. And we spent a night in a wadi in the middle of the desert. And um, in order to drive out in the Land Rover to this wadi where you would spend the night under the, literally the most beautiful sky you could ever imagine in this sort of fairly middle-class tent. It was a bit, think, think Glastonbury <laughs> rather than Reading. Glamping. Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, we were very much sort of... Yeah. Um, uh, we got driven out by this old sort of um, Bedouin whatever... Uh, guide and he had his two boys on board and um, uh, he he spoke English they didn't and he said uh, who who are you and I said I'm just yeah, I'm just the guy you're taking I said no they know you and I said no, no they don't know me he said it's your boys are, you know don't worry it's, it's just, it's <laughs> so um, they suddenly one of them said FIFA and I turned around and obviously they had no idea but they recognized my wow. voice these Isn't that amazing. These two guys, these two um, kids out in the Middle East in a desert <laughs> in Hawaii, I'd been playing FIFA and recognised my voice. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, I want to ask you finally, you, you said <clears> earlier on about the, um, the kind of anticipation you get when the stadium's empty at the beginning of the game. And one of the things that I find most fascinating is the feeling you get at the end of a game when you come away from the, the, the full time's done, yeah. the fans leave the stadium. What, for you, um, is the, the overriding feeling that you have when everyone leaves and it's suddenly just you and, and your notes and, and you're packing up ready to go home? Well, the honest answer is um, I'm, far, I'm far more conditioned by how I think I performed rather than how good a game it was. I mean, the, there will be exceptions to that because, as I say, there'll be wow games. There'll be games where you put the microphone down and just think, we, we were here today, we saw this, we'll talk about this for years to come. But no, more often than not, uh, I am, my, my mind is thinking far more about how I think I might have performed. And, and really, until I watch it back, I'm never quite sure. Um, that, so that's part of, you know, that's part of the review. Um, it, I am a, I'm a television broadcaster. I'm, I'm not a football player. Um, the, the standards by which I 
I'm judged, uh, the standards by which I judge myself are broadcast standards, they're not, they're not sporting standards. Um, and a, a good television broadcast is more important to me than a, than a good sporting event. Um, that's, that's just the way I am. And if, you know, I always say to, to university students that I go to speak to who are undergraduates, who obviously want my job or, or want a job in, in my business, that this is, um, this is a calling, you know, that without being too romantic, you've got to want to do this. And in order to show that you want to do it, you've got to have an involvement in it. Um, you know, I, th I think that it's very, there are far more media graduates than there are media jobs. Uh, and that's tough. But now there are media, when I went to university, which wasn't in the 1800s, it was actually, uh, when was it, 1970s, oh boy, 1970s. There were three media courses in the country and I, I couldn't get on any of them. One of them, one of them was a, a polytechnic, so there were two university media courses in the country and I think they were brand new. Uh, there are now, I don't know, hundreds. Um, but even though um, th there are far more opportunities in that sense, um, the biggest opportunity is to get yourself published, is to, is to be proactive, is to consume media from the very beginning as you would if you were already in the business. And that's what I encourage people to do. That I say that nobody should be watching a news programme or listening to a podcast or visiting a website on this whole university in the way that you do because you should be doing it critically now asking yourself what you like about it what you as a consumer think about this what it's good and bad about it so that if you get into the position where you are serving consumers then you can do it with with more knowledge and to this day that is my involvement in the job I, this is this is a better job for me than being the i would rather be clyde tilsley than harry k i'd rather like quite like to be harry k's age <laughs> Um, he probably doesn't know as many golf. To be he doesn't know quite as many golf courses <laughs> as I do. But no. But I, I mean, I I would much rather be a, um, a 25. What is he? 28, 27 year old um, football commentator than I would. It, it's a, it's a dream to to be to wear the England number nine shirt, and and probably I've had that dream. Um, but actually, the thing that I always wanted to do was commentate football on television, and. You know, that's 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 what I do. And long may it continue. Thank you so so much, Thank mate. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks, ben.